Hey guys, it's Sarah. On this episode, former NFL executive Amy Trask and I talk about her path to becoming CEO of the Raiders, how she reacted when an NFL owner asked her to get him a coffee, and why she mistakenly thanked a media exec for their military service. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. You can rate it, preferably five stars, and leave a review on iTunes or the podcast app. It's That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about our newest ESPN podcast, SV Pod, hosted by Scott Van Pelt. Every week, Scott and Stanford Steve chat about the biggest events in sports and talk to all the biggest names in sports. You can find SV Pod wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Amy Trask, and my dilemma is this. How is it that every dog and every cat in your household knows the moment you are about to start a podcast or a radio and inserts themselves into that activity very loudly? Listen, Amy, don't I know it. One time, my sweet angel of a pooch, who is truly a gift sent from heaven, Fletch, decided to remain silent all show, sitting at my feet, only to go on a barking tirade just as we got to the very delicate subject of domestic violence. Clearly, it is my fault. Clearly, he is a very good boy. I should have kicked him out of the studio before the show started, but sometimes he gets real comfy and snuggled at my feet, and I don't want to move him, and then I just cross my fingers and hope he doesn't make any noise. But Amy, in the end, move them we must. There's only two choices here. You either accept that your furry friends might make an appearance and likely at the most inopportune moment, like those two toddlers that went viral when they interrupted their dad's uh, BBC News hit, or ensure that they're not going to get in the way by tossing a treat into a guest bedroom and then shutting the door and locking them in there for an hour or so. It's not great, but they'll probably just take a nap. They won't even notice. And there are some topics that should not be interrupted by a bark. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Amy Trask, former CEO of the Oakland Raiders, a.k.a. the Princess of Darkness. She's now an analyst for CBS Sports on We Need to Talk and that other pregame show. She's chairman of the board of the Big Three League, serves on the board of directors for Tony LaRusso's Animal Rescue Foundation, and the advisory board of the Los Angeles Sports and Entertainment Commission. In 2019, as part of the NFL's commemoration of its 100-year anniversary, she was named one of the top 100 greatest game changers in NFL history. We talked about her incredible rise from unpaid intern to CEO of the Raiders, how offering grace instead of anger served her well early in her career when she was one of the only women in the room, her very special relationship with Al Davis, how she learned to work with staff members, even those that didn't want her in the role that she had, how crying on the job both her and her male co-workers was never seen as a negative with the Raiders, her thoughts on the Raiders going to Vegas, and how the sports landscape has changed from when she started with them back in 85. It's an awesome conversation. Great leadership skills and thoughts, even for those outside the sports world. I really think you're going to like it. That's what she said. So I've been trying to track Amy down for years, but we finally nabbed her. She's a busy lady. And I'm so excited to have this conversation. Amy, we got to start way back in the beginning. I know you grew up in the Brentwood area of Los Angeles. And I'm curious if you grew up a football fan. 
I did. And before I dive into that, let me just thank you for having me on. I have been a fan of yours for a very, very long time. And this is a tremendous privilege and pleasure. And um, I'm kind of giddy about it. And the answer is I have loved football for a very, very long time. I fell in love with the game in junior high uh, and have loved it ever since. And the Raiders, was this because, because I think when you were growing up, they were Oakland. So at the time, was it just that they had, you know, that they were a close team and and that you were, you know, what was the allegiance there? I actually didn't form my allegiance to the Raiders until I went to the Bay Area for college. I grew up in Los Angeles, as you noted, uh, and I fell in love with the game itself as opposed to a particular team. The Rams were the team in Southern California at the time, and whenever it was the holidays, I would purchase uh, for my dad tickets for a Rams game, and the two of us would go together, and, and that was something very special growing up. When I went to Berkeley, uh, the the Raiders were, to, to coin a phrase, just down the road, and really they were just down the road or the freeway, and I fell in love with the team while I was a student at Cal. So, yeah, let's talk about that. Undergrad at Berkeley, you got your B.A. there. Before you went to, uh, to law school at USC, did you already know that you wanted to be a lawyer? When you were growing up and you were a kid, what did you dream of being as an adult? Every single thing imaginable <laughs> other than being a lawyer. I never dreamt of being a lawyer. And in fact, didn't decide until very, very late um, in college when it was time to start thinking about what's next, that I would go to law school. And I was one of those many, many students who goes to law school with with no intention of practicing law. I went for the background it would give me for a business career. And in that regard, it was um, a tremendous background. It was also um, a really long time ago, Sarah. I came out of college um, in in the early part of the 80s. I came out of law school in, in the mid-80s. And there were no discussions back then of women, plural, in sports. And it it wasn't a topic on the table, so to speak. And I felt that having a graduate degree would give me some extra gravitas in the business world. Um, If I walked into a meeting room and I had that degree, I thought it could help. Yeah. Wait, so let's go back. When you were a kid, you said you wanted to do anything and everything. What are we talking here? Fireman, you know, ballerina, astronaut, Broadway? Uh, Astro, oh, never Broadway. That that was not my bailiwick. Uh, concert cellist, okay. Veterinarian, veterinarian mm-hmm. astronaut. Uh, boy, I can't even think of some of the things. But it changed all the time. And, and to my parents' credit, and to my great great appreciation, you know, they encouraged that. You know, think of everything. Think of every alternative. And I, boy, there were there were periods of time when I thought a veterinarian. Uh, I thought a competitive equestrian an astronaut, a concert cellist, as I mentioned, and a whole lot of other things. So my mom is a lawyer. Uh, She and my dad have a practice together, and yet she still in 2020 deals with people in the courtroom thinking that she's an assistant or not a lawyer, even though she's been at it forever. And when she started in law school and just came out of law school, there were times when they had to turn down offers for my my dad because the, the firm wouldn't allow my mother to work there as well. So I wonder, wow. when you're in law school in, in 82 and you're at USC, um, was there a feeling, even as you were learning and, and, and studying to be that profession, that it wasn't going to be an easy road as a woman? Uh, I never gave that any thought. And the reason I note that is I'm not going to suggest that that might not have been something that occurred to other women in my class. 
I never spent one moment thinking about my gender. I never spent one moment thinking about any challenges my gender might um, present to others because I didn't consider it a challenge to me. And and I guess the, the, the better way of articulating that is in, in two ways. Number one, if I don't want other people thinking about my gender when I walk into an NFL owners meeting or uh, when I walk onto a television set or when I walked into a meeting of Raider ownership or the locker room meeting, players, coaches, if I don't want others thinking about my gender, it didn't make sense to me for me to waste my time thinking about mm. my gender or stated differently. If other people want to waste their time, go ahead, waste your time. As to challenges it presented, you know, I'm asked all the time, Sarah, do I think I was tested because I was a woman? I don't know the answer to that, but let's assume that the answer is yes. Well, number one, people are tested all the time for gender, race, ethnicity, and oodles of other issues, age, educational background, quality of college. People are tested all the time. What's the best answer when you're tested? Pass the damn test. Mm. So that's where I focus my energy. Yeah. I love that. Okay, so you're you're in law school at USC. The, the the Raiders move to LA the same year you start, and you decide to cold call the Raiders to try to get an internship. Um, what made you think to do that, and why did you think to yourself that you'd like to to work for a football team as your first sort of real life experience? Well, as I mentioned, I fell in love with uh, the team when I was a student at Cal. So much about the team, not just on field and the way the team played the game so to speak, but everything the team and its owner stood for off the field. Al Davis hired people without regard to any individualities that have no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job. He brought people in that other organizations labeled behavior problems and having been labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten and having (laughs) had to deal with that label through the time I graduated high school. And by the way, some people say it still fits. I love the fact that here was someone who hired people, um, drafted people, signed people who had been labeled behavior problems because I was one and I love that. He gave people second and third and fourth chances. Some people criticized him for giving people so many chances, but having been given multiple chances myself, that resonated with me as well. And of course, as we went on to see, he hired Um, And I'll do this chronologically, not for any other reason. He hired Tom Flores. Then he hired me. Then he hired Art Shell as a head coach. Um, These were things that at the time he did them were absolutely groundbreaking. So I loved everything about the Raiders up until that point and then thereafter. So when I was in law school, I started hearing people talk about internships or externships. And I didn't know what the heck the difference was between an internship and an externship. But I thought wow, that sounds like a great idea. I don't know what compelled me to do it. I don't think I gave it a lot of thought, but I looked up the phone number. Oh, the year that I graduated from Cal and moved back to Los Angeles was the same year that the team ultimately relocated to LA. It had tried earlier, but been ordered back by the courts and then ultimately came down the same year I graduated college. So I picked up the phone and I called and I said, I'd like to do an internship. And they patched me through to someone who said, what's that? And I said, well, I'm going to work for you and you're not going to pay me. And he said, come on down. And that's how it all began. 
And if I may, I will just add that I am very, very cognizant that not everyone has the tremendous luxury and fortune, if you will, of being able to say, I'll work for free and Mm -hmm. I, I shall forever shall forever appreciate that I had that opportunity and I recognize that not everyone does. So you're an intern there and you passed the bar in 85. Why did you leave to go to a law firm? Uh, Was there not an opportunity to stick with the Raiders? Correct. There were no opportunities there at the time. So I went to a law firm again, never having intended to practice law. And I certainly swore to everybody, not only am I not going to be a lawyer who goes in the courtroom, I'm not even going to know where the courtroom is. Ultimately, when I became a witness in so many of the lawsuits involving the NFL, I found that courtroom, but as a witness, not a lawyer. So I joined a firm where I practiced uh, transactional law, contracts, and and things of that nature. And about a year in, I got a call from the Raiders saying they wanted to um, add a very, very junior lawyer to their staff, and did I want the job? I said yes. I ran so fast down the hallway to the managing partner where Al could assign me to play defensive back. And I gave notice, um, went home, uh, fairly newly married at the time, said to my husband, um, I gave notice. I have an opportunity at the Raiders. I said, yes, I have no idea what they're paying me. I don't care. Neither did he. And that started my career. I love it. Okay. So you get to the Raiders now as an official employee And I heard you on another podcast talking about how one of the first things you did fresh back at the organization was walk around to every department and ask them questions so that you would know everything from the weather on game day to how many tickets had been sold, you know, to what was going on in financials. You know, there's there's a real, I think, conflict for some people, especially young women in jobs to not be exposed for not knowing things. So it can be tough to ask questions, even if that will make you better at your job. What was it about you arriving there that gave you the confidence to say, not only am I going to bug everyone in every department to make sure that I know everything, but that I'm willing to put myself out there as needing to learn? Um, I do love that you were use the word bug everyone because that's exactly <laughs> what I did. And I learned later how bothered they really were. You know what, Sarah? I didn't give it any thought. I didn't do that for strategic reasons. I didn't do that for um, any sort of Well, I guess strategic reason is the best way to say it. I was so thrilled to be part of the organization. Had I been told my responsibilities were picking up the scrunched up Gatorade cups on the sideline during the games, I would have been thrilled and I would have been the best cup picker upper I could possibly have been. I was just ecstatic to be part of the organization. So the reason I walked from department to department was a desire to learn. It wasn't okay, I better figure this out. Okay, I better learn so I can do my job better. I really wanted to know how everything worked and I wanted to help. So, you know, Saturday mornings I would come in and I would go in the ticket office and I would just sit down on the floor and alphabetize the will call envelopes and sit there and observe (laughs) how all the ticketing people did their jobs. And I walked from office to office and just, I was fascinated and I was so thrilled. And umpteen people said to me, Um, Some probably for the right reasons. They were warning me, they thought. Some for perhaps reasons of discouraging me uh, said, you know, you better not do this. Al's not going to like that you're walking from office to office. Al's not going to like that you're asking questions. I I just kept doing it. That's me, for better or worse. And some people would tell you it's for worse. But one day very early in my career, or early as a full-time employee, I should say, I was walking up the staircase and Al was walking down and he stopped me and he said, what's our ticket count? 
And I learned two things that minute. One, he absolutely knew that I was walking around asking questions of every department. And number two, that was his way of encouraging me to do so. Yeah. I guess the third point, which melds in with it, is know the answer. So here he was <laughs> not telling me not to do it. He was encouraging me in his own way to do it. And I thought, okay, if you're going to do this, Amy, you better know the answer when he stops you. So let's talk logistics because I love this as advice in general. I think working hard, being available to to anybody, even if it's not your particular boss, and knowing that no job is 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 below or above you is a great approach. But logistically, how did you have time to do the job that you had been hired to do and also walk around and organize will call tickets and do everything else? Well, I I spent the hours. You know, you raise a great point, and it's one that resonates with me. Hard work matters, and that's the way um, I was raised. My parents instilled that from a very young, young age. Do your job. Um, don't do, pardon the language, but what I always heard was don't do a half-assed job. Uh, wh- you and, can you definitely know, say work- ass on this podcast, Amy. Good. It might get better. Uh, one of my it, recent it, you know, guests said the F-bomb 80 times in one 45-minute interview. Kind of like that. <laughs> uh, you, you know, work hard. Hard work really, really matters. Um, and when I'm asked by, and I'll use the expression young people, and I'll sound very old when I say that, <laughs> but when I'm asked, you know, for career advice, I say, work hard. Work really, really hard. And when you don't think you can work any harder, find a way to work harder. I got into that office every morning, bright, bright, bright and early, and I did not leave that building until Al did. Not because I was necessarily working with him, not because I cared whether he saw that I was there, most often he didn't, but because if something arose and extra hands were needed, I wanted to be able to contribute and to help. And, you know, umpteen times during my career as I advanced to the organization, people would check in with me on their way out the door quite early and say, hey, I got everything I needed to get done done today, and, and I'm going to head out early. And my response was, okay. But, you know, if all hell breaks loose, if something happens, if there's a crisis of sorts, you're not going to be here to help your teammates. Mm-hmm. And that's something to think about, being there to be part of a team and helping in any way you can. And I don't think that applies to just working with a team. That w- applies to working with any business whatsoever. If you're going to be part of a team, then be part of a team. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have time management tips either from those days or now? Because I think one thing that's interesting is work hard is is universal. I think some people don't get what working hard looks like or feels like, right? And and part of that is learning what it really means to to go above and beyond and to and to be willing to do whatever it takes. Um, but I think another part of that is people who are not good at time management. So they may be there for the hours, but the work ain't really getting done. Do you have any massive tips for people on that? I really don't. Um, look, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, and I know you know I could take the rest of your podcast listing my weaknesses. But not managing time efficiently is not one of them. It's just something that's always come rather naturally. But, you know, I will tell you an anecdote, if I may, about time and and working hard and getting the job done, which was when I wasn't with the team, as we discussed, when Al chose to move it from Oakland to L.A., but I was with the organization when Al chose to move it back to Oakland. And he didn't make the final discussion a decision until the eve of the season in which we were going to start playing in Oakland. And I was working like a fiend. I mean, even for me, it was fiendish hours. And so I got remember getting home one night 
it was almost two in the morning because we were working on, pro- I was working on projects. And I walked in the door of the house and I just, I broke down and I started crying. And then of course I decided, and I can't believe I'm going to admit this on a podcast. I actually started crying louder, just hoping it would wake my husband up. So, <laughs> how bad is that? I should have just shaken him. I mean, right? we've all been there. I feel, I really so feel I, we've I, all been there. Like I'm not getting the sympathy I need. Let me take this up a notch so somebody pays attention. <laughs> right. And I don't want to shake you to wake you up. I'm going to cry really loud and hope you wake up. And he did. And he said, you know, what's wrong? And I was crying. And I said, I have so much to do. I don't know how I'm going to get it done. I just, I don't know how I'm going to get it done. And mind you, it's two in the morning. And his response to me was, then why did you come home? Ah. And I thought that was the moment when I thought, oh, my God, I've married my father. Yeah. 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 Or yourself, I guess. Right. Or myself or myself. I just needed that kick in the pants. Yeah. Um, Okay. So another thing that you've talked about a lot, especially in your early years with the Raiders before you, you know, were elevated was people constantly asking you what's next? What are you aiming for? What's your long-term goal? What's your five-year plan? And you've said uh, in numerous interviews that you really didn't believe in the idea of a five-year plan, at least for yourself might work for others, but wasn't something for you. And I always find this interesting because I think there are two kind of sets of people, the people who say, I'm going to work really hard and do the very best at the thing that's right in front of me. And that's going to lead me to the next thing. Or the people who think if you don't lay it out and put out there what you're what you're aiming for, you're never going to get there. Why for you was it right to not have that plan? Well, by the way, that's a great way to articulate it. You did that much better than I did, that for some people it really works and for others it doesn't. And I yeah. have never had a five-year plan. Me neither. I don't, want, I don't want a five-year plan. And as I said to someone who once said to me, you need a five-year plan, I said, I don't want a five-year plan. And I looked at him and I said, and by the way, that whole five-year plan thing didn't work out so well for the Russians either. So just, you know, leave me alone. I don't need a five-year plan. <laughs> uh and and for the kids today that are listening, go back in history. You can look up the whole Russian five-year plan thing, and that will make sense. Uh, Don't get it mistaken you know, with whatever the Russia five-year plan is right now. That'll take you down right, a loop. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm referring to the historic one that we learned about in history class. Uh, you know, again, I think it goes back to the fact that I was so thrilled to be part of the organization and to do whatever I could do to contribute to the organization that it didn't matter to me what my role was as long as I was contributing. And titles have never, ever mattered to me. They still don't. Uh, I was stunned when Al told me that that title was was now going to be, um, I don't know, given to me, used for me, whatever language he used. Um, Titles don't matter. Job description doesn't matter. I believe your job is to do whatever it is you can contribute to the organization for which you work. So I don't have a five-year plan now. I certainly don't criticize others who want a roadmap. I just have never wanted one. Yeah, and I think there's, I think it's, for some people at least, a misconception that if you don't have that plan, you're not ambitious. I think you could be very ambitious, but be willing to see where the hard work and, and, and life takes you when you put in the work versus needing to believe that there's a set place to get to, because sometimes that can actually limit you, I think, instead of, instead of allowing you to flourish. Um, but I understand that for some people that sort of, writing down your goals and ambitions is necessary. Um, Let's talk about what happens when you get elevated to CEO. Um, It was about, what, 10 years or so at the organization before you got up to that level? 
Uh, give or take, yeah. I don't remember the exact chronology, but that sounds roughly right. What are some of the, not not day-to-day, because I'm sure it was always different, but what are some of the jobs that you did as CEO of the Raiders? Well, look, I worked for an organization where uh, the, the, the owner of the business was, shall we say, hands-on. How's that for diplomatic? <laughs> you know, there are some NFL teams where the um, owner of the business is removed from it and simply delegates to to others run the business. Now, by the way, I am fond of reminding people that even an owner who ultimately delegate or who delegates to a general manager or a CEO or a president still maintains ultimately control, ultimate control, because one who delegates can always take back the authority which was delegated. So um, business owners own the business. That said, I worked for an owner who was involved in every aspect of the business. There were some things he was happy to delegate to me. Those were financial in nature, business in nature, but even things that others might consider something he would delegate, he still um, was involved in marketing decisions, how we position the team, advertising decisions. He had very strong views about that. And that is in no way a complaint, in no way a criticism. It was his organization from stem to stern. And, you know, the one of the biggest misconceptions, I think the biggest misconception about Al is that you couldn't disagree with him. And I note that right now, because although I worked in all of the business areas, um, Al was very involved in all of them. And I would say that over the course of the almost 30 years I was there, we disagreed more than we agreed. But I always viewed it as my role to disagree with him when I disagreed, but to recognize that as the owner of the business, ultimately decisions were his. And when he made a decision, whether I agreed with it or not, it was my responsibility to effectuate it to the best of my ability and not to share with anyone that I disagreed with it. That's not what you do when you're part of a team. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's that's another thing is to be confident enough in your own abilities to be willing to be that sounding board and that voice of, you know, dissonance there um, and and believe that you'll keep your job. Right. And that if you do disagree more than agree, then that will benefit the organization and not um, not lead to a dismissal, which requires a certain amount of confidence, to be sure. Um, Well, and, and, and I'll just I'll just interject that I love what you just said. Disagreement can be productive and healthy. Now, I believe that there's a way to disagree. You can disagree agreeably. You can be strong and present your case, but A, come armed with facts, come armed with data, make your case, disagree, and then whatever the decision is, do your best to make it the best decision. But disagreement is healthy and productive. Yeah, and and you know, I I do think also there's it, it doesn't serve to be a yes man or yes woman um, because best idea wins requires multiple ideas for one to be the best, not just only idea presented. Everyone agrees. Right. Um, Beautifully said. You uh, you went to your first league meeting and realized very quickly that there had been women there before. They were always wives or mothers. And that's interesting. I watched the um, a Lifetime of Sundays movie about the matriarch owners in the NFL and you know, taking over a team as owner is very different than being in those meetings as part owner when the husband is still alive or the father is still alive. Um, and I- I'm curious what that was like for you and how quickly people immediately just started treating you like everyone else in the room or if there were people that never really addressed you the same way they might 
Al or somebody else in the room? Well, I'll answer that in two regards. Um, I shouldn't be treated like an owner was treated. Right. In other words, um, if people didn't treat me as I was an owner, fair enough, I wasn't an owner. But as to the manner in which I was treated, you know, there were magnificent, magnificent men in that room. And, you know, when I did attend that first league meeting in the latter part of it, it was either the mid-80s or the latter part of the 80s, you know, I did realize very, very quickly I was the only woman in the room who wasn't on the catering staff because when we got to the league <laughs> meeting before it started, everyone was milling around in the back of the room having coffee and breakfast. And, you know, I was asked by someone to get a cup of coffee. And that's when I looked around and thought, oh, wow, I'm the only woman here who's not one of the women serving coffee. Um, and I, I point that out because the gentleman, the owner of the team, he was a team owner who asked me to do that. Ultimately, when he, he learned moments later that I was there as a participant in the meeting, um, and he became one of my most ardent, ardent supporters in the league. And, you know, there were men throughout the league that were um, had, had very, very substantial philosophical and business disagreements with Al. It was, you know, there was the league, the litigation that was pending between the NFL and Al, and they really were um, at odds with the Raiders. And yet men like Lamar Hunt and Ralph Wilson and Wellington Mara and other stalwarts of the league went out of their way to make me feel included and treated equally with other team executives who were men. And um, I, I share that because that was back in the day. I mean, again, for you kids that are listening, this was in the 80s. That was <laughs> a very long time ago. And these are men who entered their careers when women weren't in business, let alone part of the league. So the fact that these stalwarts of the league went out of their way, um, and, and there's others as well, but, you know, some that do come to mind are Lamar and Wellington and Ralph and, and these other league icons were really terrific to me. So I heard um, that coffee story on another podcast, and I want you to say the moment that you realized what he was asking you and why, and the decision that you made and why and the payoff, because you, you kind of just said it, but I, I'd like the full story because I love it. I think it's a really good potential learning opportunity for someone else who may feel like that would be the right choice for them in a situation like that as well. Sure. So, you know, we get to the league meeting. It's scheduled to start at, you know, 830 or 8 or 9 or whenever it was. People got there early and were milling around having coffee and breakfast. And the owner of a team said to me, you know, will you get me coffee? And that's when I looked around and I all of a sudden realized, oh, you're the only woman in this room that's not on the catering staff serving coffee and food. And I made an instantaneous decision. And, and I'll tell you why in a second. I just looked at him and I said, how do you take it? And he told me how he took it. And I went mm -hmm. over and I got the coffee and I handed it to him with a smile on my face. And he said, thank you. I did that, you know, growing up. My mom told me from the time I can remember, and as only moms can do, repeated it ad nauseum, to thine own self be true. And I handled that situation in the manner that felt the best to me. I knew that within moments of me handing him that coffee, we were all going to walk into the meeting area and sit down, and he was going to realize, oh, she's <laughs> part of this meeting. And that's exactly what happened. I handed him the coffee. Moments later, the meeting was called to order. We all walked from the back of the room to where we had staked out our seats. And as I sat down right across from him, he looked at me, and you could see the blood draining from his face. And I just started 
laughing. I mean, I really had what my husband refers to as one of my giggle fits. I started giggling. (laughs) He started laughing. We both started laughing. And from that moment on, for the rest of my career, at every league owner's meeting, he walked up to me and said, may I get you some coffee? And we laughed about it. And he became a supporter of mine. And and, and the reason I'm so passionate about sharing this story is I've taken a lot of criticism from a lot of women for the manner in which I chose to handle that. I've been told, you should have read him the riot act. You should have refused to do that. You should have been up in arms. And the answer is no, I shouldn't have. I should have, and I did handle it in the manner that felt right to me. And that's what I encourage others to do. Handle things in a manner that is true to yourself. Yeah, and, and I just think also there's so much room for grace there. And, and if someone wants to show you their true colors and they really do want to, if, if they're doing that intentionally and they know who you are, that's very different than making an honest mistake. And I would like to think that the way that you handled it allowed him then going forward to not make assumptions because he did feel embarrassed by it instead of defensive because you made him feel bad about it. There's a big difference there, I think, and it can be really useful in situations like that where you, you give someone a little bit of grace early on and it pays off way better than give, you know, reading him the riot act. And, and that that's sounds a great like point. that's what happened that's, when oh, you made a relationship that's, that's, with them. Fantastic point, Sarah. Fantastic. And by the way, Every, every, you know, I wouldn't say I did this every time, um, but at quite a few league meetings thereafter, I would say to him, you know, you never did tip me. (laughs) Love it. I love it. Um, So you did financial work, league compliance. Uh, You were the Raiders point of contact between the league and the team. Uh, You handled uh, debt ceiling compliance, relations with teams, limited partners. You helped Al Davis sell equity in the team. Which part of the many, many things that you did, which included even chiming in occasionally on how much players should be paid and stuff like that, what did you enjoy the most? I enjoyed everything you just articulated. Um, I I loved all of the the work with um, finance and banking and and debt covenants and, you know, that may sound rather nerdy. So let me just raise my hand and say, you know, I'm a nerd. Um, I loved all of that. I loved interacting with the league office. And the point on that is, you know, for many of my years in the league, um, until we ultimately settled all of our litigation, the league office and the Raiders were at odds in the courtroom. But I shall forever appreciate and respect and, and just love the people in the league office with whom I worked that put that aside. And we fought, you know, we, we built a very, very strong working relationship. So when you put it into context that I was working directly with all these people when the Raiders and the league were at odds in litigation is, is really something very, very special. I, I loved working with the league office. And the other thing is I loved interacting with our fans on game day and otherwise. I knew Sarah from the time I joined the Raiders, what a privilege it was to interact with the fans, to embrace them, to be embraced by them. And there was not a single game at home or on the road that I didn't spend time with the fans in the parking lots before the game, uh, in the stadium during the game. And, you know, in one instance, the president of another team, I don't know if he was president, CEO, he was the business head of another team, said to me, uh, pregame when we were on the field, you know, Amy, I see you every game, whether you're at home or on the road, when you play us on the road, you're always walking through the parking lots and walking through the stands and visiting with fans. 
why do you do that? And I looked at him and I said, why don't you? There is no league as we know it without the fans. And I loved all my time with the fans. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so you were CEO from 97 to 2013. Tell me about your relationship with Al. I know you've alluded to the fact he obviously was a very hands-on owner. Maybe uh, maybe Jerry Jones would be an accurate sort of uh, example for the current NFL. Uh, What was it like working with him all that time? Um, He was... A tremendous, I'll try not to get choked up when I say this, a tremendous, tremendous influence and force in my life and just a very, very special human being. And I will underscore again, um, I disagreed with him on business matters more than I agreed with him. And we argued and we fought like cats and dogs, although not all cats and dogs fight and not all cats (laughs) and dogs fight as ardently as Al and I fought. But we disagreed and our disagreements were often heated. But I never, ever, ever for a moment doubted um, that he trusted me and relied upon me. And, you know, there's so much more to him than, than the public knows. This is a man who was a student of history, um, of current affairs, of foreign affairs, of ancient affairs, a very, very wise man and a really good human being. Yeah. You know, I don't want to push if it wasn't there, but I'm curious because I feel like a lot of women talk about their experiences and they don't have any sad stories or they don't have any tense moments. And if it wasn't the case, you don't have to say it. But when you were elevated to CEO and presumably there were men within the organization that were also vying for and wanted that job, was there anybody there that made you feel like you were undeserving or that, you know, took it? poorly that you were elevated instead of them? Because it's hard to believe as a woman who works in a male-dominated industry that there aren't people that are frustrated, even if you earned it, when you get that job. Uh, Yes. And that started before I was elevated to CEO. Um, And I'll answer it in two parts. You had a a two-part or two-pronged test, (laughs) treated poorly and or made to feel that I didn't deserve it. I never... um, I guess going back to the time I joined the organization, there were people there that treated me poorly. And whether it's because they thought I didn't deserve the role that I had and the role I grew into, or for other reasons, maybe they wanted that role irrespective of whether they thought I deserved it. Yes, Mm -hmm. there were those who treated me poorly. And one of the challenges of my job, and I shared this in the book I wrote, was there were those on staff that were very clear that they did not want me in the role I had, but I had no authority whatsoever to terminate them, to discipline them, to affect their pay. In other words, they were there, they weren't going anywhere. And one of the things I had to learn to do was, okay, this is the hand of cards you've been dealt. There are people that have been in the organization a lot longer than you who are, um, resentful or bothered or jealous or whatever the word you want to use is that you are growing into the role or have the um, relationship with Al or the accessibility to Al that you have, but they're on staff and Al is saying to you on the one hand, they ain't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything about him. He didn't articulate it that way, but it was very clear. I had no authority whatsoever over these people, but I had respect responsibility to manage them and responsibility with no authority is very, very difficult. So I learned to navigate it as best I could. I mean, look, there was someone on staff who routinely referred to me as Cruella DeVille when I wasn't around. And, and, um, 
you know, I just kind of embraced that and said, okay, you want Cruella? Sometimes I'll be Cruella. <laughs> but yeah, never I mean, to puppies. Never, ever, Never ever, to actual dogs. Clear. Of course not. Correct. You didn't wear the jacket. Um, it's so true, though. I mean, no. sometimes part of the job is as much about dealing with those people despite the lack of respect or maybe um, – uh, you know the the attitude that you'd want, and, and how do you still how do you still get by day to day? It's it's really important. You know, I, you know, one of the things that you said in an, another interview was that you originally wanted to call the book that you just mentioned without regard, instead of you negotiate like a girl, and and it was because you had approached your career uh, since the beginning without regard to your gender and, and how it might be different for you as a woman in the industry. There was a CEO for Rothy's. I think she was the CEO, one of the higher ups for Rothy's, which is a great shoe brand that's mostly run by women at our ESPNW summit. And one of the things she talked about was being so true to herself in her negotiating and leadership style that instead of shying away from the things that might be stereotypically female or that might lead people to judge her leadership style as too feminine, she leaned into them because she knew they made her better at her job. And one of those was to say, if I don't get my run in in the middle of the day, you're not going to want to work for me. Right? I am going to be a terror. <laughs> so part of my day is this, and some of it had to do with her children and whatever else. And I think it was a real moment for the people at that summit in the audience to say, it's okay to lean into things, even if you feel like they're not, quote unquote, leadership styles or or the way the workplace has always been. And that's something we're talking about a lot as as in the last couple of years or how are the spaces that we work and how are the industries that we've built built with the idea that they're full of men and should be allowed to change now that there are other people in those positions. So I wonder, it's a very long-winded way of asking you, if there were moments that you led by being true to yourself that felt different than the leadership styles of the men around you, or if you wondered ever, will I be seen? I, I know you said you don't like to think about your gender because then other people will, but I think there are things that are stereotypes for good reason, and, and whether you ever wondered if those were making you stand out or even making you better at your job because you were true to them. Uh, I do think we're all better at our jobs men and women, if we are, as my mother always told me, I should be true to thine own self. And by the way, as a footnote, my mom told me, you know, to thine own self be true from the time I was an itty bitty kid. It wasn't <laughs> until I was in college that I learned that it was Shakespeare who wrote that, that my mom didn't invent that. But I do believe that men and women are all better at what we do if to thine own self we are true. If you want to lead, you better lead as yourself. Don't pretend you're something you're not. Don't try to be something you're not. Be authentic. Lead in an authentic manner. Um, look, I did something a couple of times during my career that women are told is career ending. Don't do this. If you do this, it's all over for you. I cried a couple times on the job. There was two times I can remember right now off the top of my head. I don't know if there were more where I cried with Al. And one of them was before I was ever made CEO. I was so frustrated and so angry and so upset at something that happened. Um, not that he did, but that a circumstance we were in and I was exhausted and I was with him and I just started crying. And the reason I note that is that was well before he made me CEO. So mm. let's agree at a minimum, it didn't dissuade him from doing that. And I share that because, you know, I'm not advocating go out and cry. What I'm saying is that's something we are told is a huge no-no for women. Yeah. But I did it, and it didn't affect my career 
one bit. The other time I did it, damn it, it was his fault. He made me so mad, and, and I just burst into tears. And you know what he did when I got off the phone with him? That one was on the phone. He immediately called my husband and said, you better go pick her up because I don't want her driving. I'm, you know, he was <laughs> concerned about me. And again, it didn't affect my career trajectory. Um, his only concern was, I don't want her behind the wheel of a car right, right now. Right, um, right, right. And my point, and again, I'm going to share this because, you know what? There were a couple times over the course of my career where men on staff came into my office and cried. Mm. And, you know, and again, let me not create this impression that everyone at the Raiders was running around weeping all the time. (laughs) But, you know, that's something that's considered a gender stereotype, and I don't think it needs to be. And you know what? To thine own self be true, when I held staff meetings, there were ice cream sundae bars at them. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. I love that. Um, a couple quick ones, because I know we have to get out of here. Are there players that you're still close with from your time with the Raiders? Uh, yes, there are. There are players I'm still in touch with, and I'm not going to name any because I would be horrified if I left any out. <laughs> players and coaches with whom I'm yeah. still in contact um, and then tell me about this move to Vegas. You know, this is a Raiders team that's obviously moved a couple times. It's not the same as picking up, you know, the Chicago Bears and taking them somewhere. But what are your thoughts on going to Vegas? Um, my thoughts are twofold, and they're not mutually inconsistent. I'm surprised by how often people think they are. For those fans that are embracing the move and are thrilled about the move, well, I am happy for them. I know they will enjoy following the team to Vegas. It will be a magnificent stadium. And if they're happy, I'm happy for them. And for those fans whose hearts are broken and who will not be following with the team to Vegas and have said, enough, I don't want another move, you've broken my heart again, my heart is broken for them. And those are not mutually inconsistent. I'm happy for those who are happy, and I'm very sad for those who are heartbroken. Yeah, I don't think those are inconsistent at all. I think it makes absolute sense. And uh yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by their tenure in Vegas, and I'm excited to go to a Bears away game in Vegas, too. I think that'll be a lot of well, fun. <laughs> you know what? You just mentioned something, and I will add that as one more thought on the move. That is a paradigm shift that the team is going to have to prepare for. Right now, mm. when you go to a game in Oakland, it is overwhelmingly, and by overwhelmingly, I mean more than 95% oh, yeah. Raiders fans in the stands. Well, now, as you just noted, if you are the fan of a team that is playing the Raiders on the road, and you have the opportunity to go to only one road game to cheer your team on, well, we all saw Vegas vacation with Chevy Chase. (laughs) Lots of fans are going to go root their team on in Vegas. So the team is going to have to get used to more visiting team fans in the stands, and that doesn't mean there won't be a ton of Raider fans. Of course there will, but there will be more fans of the visiting team. Yeah, it is certainly something to think about. Absolutely. Um, so you left the Raiders in 2013. It's 2020 now. You're doing all sorts of stuff in the industry. You're on the board of the Big Three Basketball League. You're working at CBS Sports as an analyst. You're writing books. Tell me what it's like to be in this industry from 1982 to 2020 as a woman. How much has changed and then maybe how much you're still sick of having to talk about it? Well, how much it's changed is how many terrific women are involved now. Again, when I started in the mid-80s, there wasn't a discussion of women in sports. That wasn't a topic at all. 
now you look around the league and you see these magnificent um, executives, Jeannie Bonk of the Los Angeles Chargers, Hannah Gordon of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, in the big three, we've got two of our coaches, our women, Nancy Lieberman, Lisa Leslie. It's just terrific that this is now something that is, you know, far, far, far more prevalent because it didn't exist way back then. Um, and people ask me if that excites me. And, you know, of course it does. But what is really going to be exciting is when it's no longer aberrational, when it's no longer a topic, when we no longer have to point out when people are hired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any other individuality, which has no bearing whatsoever on whether one can do a job. That's what's going to be very exciting. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, Uh-oh. what's your Uh-oh. Desert Island album? You can only have one. I'm sorry, if I was on a desert island and could only have one album? Yeah, for the rest of your life. Uh- Easy. Straight out of Compton. NWA. Easy. (laughs) Uh, That's my second favorite answer of all time to this. That is so unexpected. I love it. Uh, Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? That if I'm told I can't do something, I'm going to do it. Mm. And that goes all the way back to that point I made earlier about being that behavior problem in kindergarten or being <laughs> labeled the behavior problem in kindergarten. You tell me I, I'm not to do something, I'm doing it. I love that. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh. Um, no Super Bowl ring. An AFC championship game a ring from my years with the Raiders, but no Super Bowl ring. Mm. That's a good one. Uh, Number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No, I haven't. Um, You know, maybe some hair pulling as a kid, but no fist fight. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Anyone for a day? Alive or dead? You know what? Um, I'm going to say right now, and and if you think this is a cop-out and I need to think of someone, I, I will try. I'm so happy in my life. I don't want to switch with anyone. You wouldn't want to be a guy for a day just to see? I would love to get in the brain of a dude. No, I don't want to. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, you're like the only person who doesn't want to be Beyonce or Barack Obama for a day. Oh, wait. I didn't even think of something like that. (laughs) All right. maybe. Okay. um, Okay. You know what? The talent I've always, 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 always wanted is to be able to sing like Beyonce or like yeah. someone, you know, whether Beyonce or someone else. So I would like to switch. I'll, I'll switch places with someone who can really, really, really sing. Yeah. Yeah. Just to be, be like a rock star or a beautiful singer for a day would be fantastic. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, I embarrass myself regularly. <laughs> um, all right. One of the times was, involved in league meetings and someone told me he was before joining the league with Viacom and I had never heard Viacom referred to as <laughs> Viacom and I thought he said this was a phone conversation that he had been with the Viet Cong oh my so God. I thought he was telling me he had been a prisoner of war so here this executive with whom I'm speaking said he was with Viacom 
I then went on, thinking he had said he was the Viet Cong, to thank him for the service to the country, to express my appreciation as an American, and I went on and on. That is one of about 10 billion embarrassing moments I've had. That is amazing. Oh, my gosh, I love that. That's so funny. Was he maybe British or something? Like, Viacom? No. Like, no. No. <laughs> just, just pronounced it differently. I had just never heard Viacom referred me, me to neither. Viacom. That's so and funny. And I thought he said Vietcom. So I was <laughs> profuse in my appreciation for his sacrifice. Oh, gosh, I love that. Uh, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Um, probably my eating habits. You eat bad food? Um, I eat an astonishing amount of sugar. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, I don't eat poorly. I'm a vegetarian, and my eating habits, other than my just insane consumption of sugary products, my eating habits are fine. But that's probably something that, that I should pay a little bit of attention to. But I'm not sure. Sugar's hard to kick. It. Yeah, it's hard to I, kick. Um, I'm just hoping that, you know, there was that. Saturday Night Live skit once where we heard headlines you'll be hearing in headlines in the year 2020. Right. And one was, you know, Oat Brand, the silent killer. <laughs> I keep waiting for the headline that's going to say, we were wrong. Sugar is right. really good for you. Well, they've done that about fat, right? Fat used to be the bad right. one. And now they were like, actually, that was paid for by the sugar people. So I don't know. Right. Maybe we'll find out the sugar stuff has been paid for by the carb people or something. Who could say? Fingers um, crossed. Yeah. Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? You may not be cruel to any animal on the planet. You may not be cruel. You may not abuse them. You may not abandon them. You may not be cruel to any animal or any person. But I'm speaking right now to animals in general. No cruelty to animals. That might be my favorite one yet. I agree with that one wholeheartedly. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? I have a very, very vivid imagination. And I would say the most scared I am ever is if I think um, that something has happened to someone I love. So I'm just going to say right now, I don't think there was anything weird about me calling the sheriff and dispatching helicopters to fly over Mount Baldy when I thought someone I loved had gone missing, even though they were only two hours late. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> was this pre-cell phones? Um, there's no cell service um, in ah, a lot of those areas. So okay. I, I, if, if you are someone I love. And you're not where I think you should be. I mean, look, <laughs> the general counsel of the Raiders once was not where I thought he should be when he should be there. And he was always, always, always on time. So, again, I think there's nothing aberrational about me having thought he drove off the freeway into a ditch <laughs> and having someone call all the hospitals in the area. If I love you and you go missing, I will hunt you down. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Um, I have a friend who had like a week-long search party for a cat that was stuck in a closet. <laughs> it happens. Uh, you know what? I would do that too. <laughs> uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Fair. Honest. And I don't know how to do this in one word, but um, okay, fair, honest, open-minded. I like that. Those are all very good ones. Uh, and finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone interesting you think I should talk to? Ice Cube. Oh, that would be a good one. And I know he's down. He's on ESPN a lot. Um, Ice Cube it is. That's a great suggestion. Um, 
You know what? That reminds me um, because I was just thinking of of a tweet I saw. Uh, why do you say hi in all your tweets? I've always loved going back decades. I've always loved saying hi to people when I walk by them on the street, when I see someone in an elevator. If I'm in an elevator, I say hi to everyone. If I walk by <laughs> you on the street, I'm saying hi to you. If we're in an airport terminal, I'm saying hi. Um, I've always done it. I love doing it. And I consider um, Twitter, you know, our, our sort of our page on Twitter to be our timeline, whatever you call it. That's Twitter street for my Twitter village. So I say yeah. hi. I love that. That's great. And it's a good reminder, I think, for someone who wants to say something rude or unkind, if you have to say hi first. Hello, you suck. <laughs> right? It's right? a little bit trickier. <laughs> I do that. Too. Right. It's trickier, but we can do it. Yeah, exactly. This was so great, Amy. I'm so glad we finally figured out to get it done. This was fantastic. I am thrilled. This is really, really a tremendous privilege and pleasure for me. I've been a fan of yours forever. Um, And if I sound like I'm kind of being dorky and geeky about that, I am. I'm that giddy about this. (laughs) That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, the Mets. Now listen, there's plenty of things about baseball's biggest dumpster fire, non-sign-stealing cheaters edition to complain about, but this is a very specific gripe. MLB.com Mets beat writer Anthony DeComo tweeted out a photo of a very lavish, expensive locker room with this caption. The most striking part of the Mets' $57 million spring training renovation may be the home clubhouse. The Mets are only using it for spring training, not for the St. Lucie regular season, to give minor leaguers a reminder of the status they're working to earn. So, you know, the St. Lucie guys have a nice, pretty new clubhouse but not using the fancy, gorgeous, big league, multi-million dollar clubhouse just to prove something to the minor leaguers? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because minor leaguers don't even make a living wage. The average minor league baseball player makes about $8,000 to $8,500 a year. They're not MLB players who make three plus million dollars a year. But definitely, yeah, you should teach them a lesson by not letting them use your fancy clubhouse. They'll definitely strike out less and work harder and be better able to physically perform despite not being able to afford three meals a day if you dangle a fancy clubhouse in front of them and force them to sit on folding chairs instead. As former Major Leaguer Ty Kelly tweeted, tough to forget you're in A-ball when you're rationing two plates of spaghetti for 25 guys after games, but sure, leather couches will go to their heads. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. The Mets need to look deep inside themselves as a collective and cut the f***ing bullshit. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Leave your dilemma in your review, and I might fix it on a podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. <laughs>